Preference Podcast. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Preference Podcast, where we interview business experts, thought leaders, and generally people we find really cool on the topics of business and law uh, before the backdrop of digitization and connectivity. Uh, today, we have with us David from David Allen Miller Law in New York. I'm very happy that you're with us, David. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, man. Um, yeah, just maybe just start start us off with uh, what you do exactly and where. And uh, yeah, let's start off with that. Sure. So I started my own law firm. I am based in New York City. Um, it's the law office of David Allen Miller. And I primarily represent e-commerce sellers. So a lot of Amazon, eBay, Walmart, uh, Etsy e-commerce sellers. Uh, typically intellectual property disputes. It could be business law matters or any sort of, you know, account or listing suspension on Amazon or any other website that they're having issues with. Uh, sometimes they have questions about compliance issues or terms and conditions. So it's pretty much uh, heavily e-commerce based, although I do have other clients, in, you know, that have retail businesses as well. All right. Um, super interesting niche. Um, like quick question, like beforehand, what moved you to start your own law firm as opposed to maybe like, you know, just joining an existing law firm or maybe you already worked as a lawyer before somewhere else and then decided to open your law firm. How was your, yeah, how was your, yeah, so I'll, I'll go into my background a bit. So yeah, yeah. I, I always wanted to be my own boss and, and start my firm. It's oh, it was always in my plans or something I was always thinking about. I just never knew exactly when I'd be in the position to be able to do it, right? So it's it's so it's easy to talk about doing something and actually doing it and executing it is a whole other ball game. So I I finished law school in 2017 and I worked for another firm for about three and a half years or so. And I just decided that I at first at first it was more of I didn't really feel like I had the experience to start my own firm. There are some lawyers who do it right out of law school, and I, I give I give them a lot of credit because it's it's difficult. You know, law school doesn't teach you a lot of you know the business side of the of you know of a law practice. It's it's mainly just analyzing legal arguments, forming arguments, legal writing. Those are all great skills to have, but it's not going to help you bring in clients when you start your own business. So right. While I was at my previous firm, I learned a lot of skills that I didn't even necessarily learn in law school, how to run a business, how to, you know, go to certain networking events. And of course, it comes with being a lawyer, being able to talk to people, being able to present. But it's different when you're somewhat pitching an audience, you know, so I, I learned certain skills and I took more of the approach rather than pitching something, it was more educational. So anytime I gave a presentation, I elaborated on what I did and how, you know, certain, I would give free advice to, you know, how, how to help certain businesses. And they would ask me questions and often they would contact me after the event or whatever it was. But the short answer is I always wanted to do it. At first, I wasn't ready to, I didn't think I had the experience to, so I wanted to gain experience. And I wasn't in a financial situation where I thought I could, I could actually execute that. Mm -hmm. So once those, you know, that change, and I had about three and a half years of experience under my belt, I decided it was, 
it, it, it just was the time. Everything is timing in life. I always felt like, so sometimes it's, it's never going to be the perfect time. So if you just wait and wait for the perfect time, you'll be a lot older, grayer and wrinkly, and you're never, you're just never going to do it. So if you're waiting for the perfect time, I don't think it's going to happen. If you're in a position where you're willing to take a risk, it can be very rewarding. And, you know, of course, there's other risks that come along with owning your own business because no one's forcing you to get out of bed every day. No one's, uh, you know, breathing down your neck, telling you what you have to do. You got to go out there and do it on your own. Right. Right. Uh, thanks for that input. I just have I just have a question that I'd like to throw in between because you just told us a little bit about um, about law school. Is it true? I heard it from somewhere. I don't know, but I never really had it confirmed by someone who actually went to law school in America. Is it true? Because first of all, I think it's because of the jury system, uh, the talking to people. Right. Is it true that you guys actually or that some law schools actually offer acting classes? in order to maybe like, you know, get the rapport with the jury or stuff like that? Because I heard that it's, uh, yeah, I heard that some law schools offer that and someone actually told me, no, it, uh, every law school has it. And I was like, I can't really believe that. Did you have that uh, during <laughs> during your education? Acting. I don't, I don't remember an acting class. <laughs> uh, I guess that doesn't necessarily mean it existed. It, it, I, but I don't, I don't remember seeing that. There were, of course, you know, all sorts of preps for that. So there were law students that would act as jury members and be mock right, trials right. and things of that yeah. sort. So if you want to call that, I guess, acting, it's, I guess, yeah. role play in a sense. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember like specific acting classes. No. Okay. Okay. No, maybe acting classes was the wrong word, but maybe it's exactly that the mock trial or the way to present yourself, you know, the way to oh, build yeah, up rapport yeah. with, with a jury, maybe that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We had mock trials that were competitions across the mm. country um, mm -hmm. my law school, actually, a few of the representatives did like pretty well in it. I remember one of, uh, one, one individual I was pretty friendly with, he was always, and he ended up uh, in, uh, doing criminal law. So he's kind of still doing that. Mm -hmm. He loved it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, right. Regarding, uh, regarding your experiences in building up, uh, your own law firm, like, are there any, let's say, you know, bureaucratic uh, or other walls, uh, any mm -hmm. red tape where you would say, okay, yeah, that was really nerve wracking or that's something I would try to circumvent today by doing so-and-so. Um, any input there that you actually share? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a few things, right? So when you first get started, it's, it's kind of a daunting task because I remember the first morning I woke up and it was time to just get started. And I had I, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to do and you can really overwhelm yourself really quickly. So mm. a few things is I, I think you have to have a, a budget for your expenses, at least to get you started. And I always was a believer in to minimize expenses the best you can. You don't want to overpay. There is some, there are some business owners that hire employees before they're, you know, before they're really generating revenue, which for, for you know, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I, I, my, I was a firm believer in keeping costs low. So when I created a website, I had someone that I, that I knew who helped me out with it. And then from there, you can always, you know, hire an expert to, you know, es essentially beef it up, make it better, help you on the SEO side of things. Um, a few other, I guess, roadblocks, you know, creating a legal entity is something that, most business owners want to do and everyone should do um, with legal and any uh, professional practice, you have additional options. So it's something to look into and it's, it's not always just a quick, you know, 
five, 10 minute read of an article in order to decide what type of entity you want to form. So in the US, it's a PLLC or a PC, so a professional corporation or a professional limited liability company, um, which were, those were the two I was deciding between. So also just whether which, whichever one you do decide, and there are others, there's LLPs, limited liability partnerships, there's sole proprietorships who don't file, they just start, they just start business and they take on, you know, personal liability. So if the attorney was sued, their personal assets would not be protected if they didn't form a legal entity. So that's the benefit behind it. Uh, most people don't want to be on the hook for, you know, if they own a house, they'd have to, you know, worry about that. Um, yeah. But forming it as, at least and in the U.S., a lot of like state governments are very slow with any documents and it could just take a while for them to get back to you. So I just remember filing and me trying to call them a few months later. Like I wasn't, I didn't call them, you know, a few days following or they didn't send me any confirmation of receipt. I had to call numerous times, didn't, couldn't get anyone on the phone. I sent emails, couldn't hear, I didn't hear anything. So I'm like, I wanted to know what, you know, at least what the status was, because for all I knew, they never even received it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, then it's going to delay me several more months. So now what I would say is I would just pay to expedite it. I didn't really look into that because right. I just wanted to file it and I wanted to get on to the next, you know, the next thing I had to do, which was, there was plenty. So I just okay. filed it and that was it. So expediting it, paying the extra fee, whatever it is in whatever state or whatever country, every country may not have that, or maybe they're not as backed up, but here in the state yeah. of New York, that was, that was a problem. Uh, I would also say setting up a Google business profile, I think is really important. Uh, that's, you know, you're able to generate Google reviews. Almost everybody mm -hmm. searches for a company before they do business with them whether you're getting a haircut or going out to eat at a restaurant, I think I read that about 90% of people look up reviews yeah. before they actually make a purchase, whether it's a product or service. So I think I, made, I might have read the same, uh, I might have read the same yeah. article there. Yeah, 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 it's a really high right. number. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and especially mm -hmm. when it comes to Amazon, it's, it's the same, you know, the same deal there where, you know, if you're a seller, that's why reviews are so important. And it's one of the reasons that many sellers get into trouble if they, you know, they don't do certain things by the book. Um, yeah. as, as for additional, I don't know if I'd call them walls, but I guess just things that I found helpful. And when you're starting your own business, there's always the working in the business versus working on the business. And what I mean by that is, say you have a few clients who have, you know, need assistance and, they're, you know, they're blowing you up. They are calling, emailing, texting, whatever the case may be. And then there's, you know, other times where you have more downtime. So I think there has to be a balance between the casework you're doing for clients and working on the business, whether it's marketing, whether it's, you know, doing podcasts like these, um, whether it's going, you know, going to networking events, there has to be that balance. Of course, you can't just ignore your clients. You have to address the client issues. But there's also a certain level where at a certain point of the day, you have to say, OK, like now I have to shift to working on my business. So I have to create a blog post. I'm going to shoot a video and I'm going to post it on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, so I think I think a balance is really important. 
Um, if you, you know, it, it's in a sense, it's a good problem to have if you have a lot of client work because that means you know things are going well. But I think um, not panicking, even if clients aren't knocking on your door, it's it's it, you have to look at it as a way of to you have more time to work on your business rather than cool. in it. Absolutely. Cool. Do you think that's the thing that kind of happened with? Uh, yeah, I mean with a technology that we have today is the problems or let's say the problems or maybe like the um this way of working working on your business and in your business do you think that would have been such a big topic 20 years ago it just maybe in another form as in you know get it get get this summer posted in a newspaper somewhere like you know do you think do you think but do you think that this is more important nowadays than it was 10 years ago for for our field so it's, that's a good question. Um, yeah. I think it was just as important then. I just think All they right. had to go about it in different ways. I think it was a lot more difficult. Now, it doesn't cost me anything to shoot a video and post it. Yeah, it may cost me if I have want to hire someone to edit it, to you know make it look pretty, for example. But for me to shoot a video and post it, I have access to lots of, you know, lots of young entrepreneurs or you know, you have you have an automatic audience by just posting to, you know, popular websites like Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. Back in the day, they had to advertise on billboards in newspapers. So they had to incur fees that we don't have to, at least at the beginning. You know, it's not necessary. There's still lawyers and other businesses who, you know, advertise on billboards newspapers i haven't i haven't seen a newspaper or read one in i don't know how long so i don't i don't Same. think that's something most people are, are using these days um but i think they had to be more creative back then i i certainly think they still had to work on the business just as much if not more because of the additional challenges that were created because of the lack of technology so i don't think that has changed i just think the way you work on the business now has changed with with the social right. media era that we're in absolutely yeah um you know, speaking of all the, the you know, the, these all changes in technology, has it made it easier uh, for you to, let's say, reach out uh, to clients? Or maybe, you know, when we're talking about this, how did you get your first clients? Did you get them in a more classical sense that uh, by word of mouth or by, I don't know how, yeah. How does, uh, how is your process in that respect? Right. So a combination of both. So when I, hmm. when I first started my own practice, the first, the first thing I did was I updated my LinkedIn, I updated my Facebook to the founder at my new law office. And I had already had clients that were I was connected to through LinkedIn and through Facebook uh, that added me when they were clients of my you know old firm or um, so I had a lot of contacts and just people that I knew for you know in the industry, um, anyone that I met at networking events, they so I was building connections, even you know, they would add me on LinkedIn. I never really thought about it. I was like, oh, I worked with him before. And then years later, you know, they'd comp, they'd, they'd like my, you know, my change, my, you know, my new position, they nice. comment on it. And then my phone would start ringing or they'd send me an email and then we would take it from there. Um, and then word of mouth too. word of mouth. Some of those, some of those business owners would tell others about me and they would contact me with issues. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Yeah. Cool. 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 Um, yeah, but I mean, did you, I mean, you have your very own niche now. Maybe you'd like to expand on. Uh, I mean, you already talked about it a little bit uh, a second ago, but maybe expand on what your uh, what your niche is and uh, how you found it exactly. Absolutely. So i I had no idea what area of law that I wanted to get into when I first got out of law school. I sure. I just remember 
I tried several different areas of the law. When I first when I first got to law school, I was nervous. I remember, I don't know in Europe if they have the Socratic method like they do here where they just cold call on people, whether you raise your hand or not. Uh-huh. They The law professor asks a question, they point to you and say, oh, Mr. Miller, what do you think? And then oh, wow. it's okay. good. If you know the answer, great. Yeah. <laughs> right in the hot seat. <laughs> they throw you right in there. So I remember thinking, uh-huh. oh, God, like, what did I get myself into? Very mm-hmm. uneasy feeling, especially the first year, but it got better after that. And in the summertime and during the semesters, I tested out different areas of the law. So I worked at a real estate law firm. I tried personal injury, medical malpractice. I was in several different areas of the law. It was not really a fan of any of them. Couldn't really see myself really, um, you know, expanding on my career in those areas. And then after law school, I was fortunate enough to land a job at an IP law firm. And a big part of what they did was assisting e-commerce sellers. So, and, you know, once I started there, I, I just, I loved it. I, I loved mm-hmm. the, the area of law it was more sophisticated to me, uh, just dealing with trademark copyright and patent law more than, you know, someone slipping and falling on ice in Manhattan, in New York right, city right. and, you know, suing <laughs> the city and the state because mm-hmm. there was ice that wasn't, you know, shoveled or, or you know, something mm-hmm. to that effect. This was more significant and, just more relatable, I thought, you know, because I'd walk on, you know, on in, uh, in Manhattan, Canal Street, for example, downtown Manhattan, they sell, you know, fake Gucci and Prada mm-hmm. and like well-known name brands right on the street for obviously a significantly lower cost than what they're okay. offering in the store. So everyone, it's common knowledge that they're counterfeit products. Wait, wait. So yeah. Louis Vuitton's main manufacturing is not on Canal Street in New York? Is that what you're telling <laughs> Not you on Canal Street. The one. <laughs> you got to tell that to the girls I went to law school with, man. I got... <laughs> okay. well, it's funny because a lot, you know, so people buy them knowing that they're counterfeit. So I guess it's different <laughs> if you know it, even though it's still not legal. But there are a lot of people where they don't want to spend four or $5,000 on a Gucci bag. So they go to Canal Street and they pay they buy one for $100. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So when I would see that, it was I was on the online side of that. So then I'd see that where there were sellers based all over the world selling products that would get all sorts of negative reviews. And I would assist in brand reinforcement to remove those sellers from from Amazon, from online platforms. And I also assisted with sellers who had their accounts suspended, um, Sometimes it was a listing suspension. So I was on I was on both sides of the fence as far as like, you know, some sellers were looking to enforce their IP rights. And then there were other sellers who maybe they received a baseless intellectual property complaint. Maybe they were suspended wrongfully or some sort of compliance issue. They didn't follow Amazon's terms and conditions. So Amazon Amazon was a big part of what I did. So I I just know I knew and I you know, continue to learn more and more about Amazon. So I always hesitant to call myself an expert in any field, especially when mm-hmm. one is changing so often, but that was a, a very large part of what I did. So it was almost a combination of e-commerce with IP law. Um, so right. it could be Amazon related along with IP. So account okay. suspensions, listing yeah. suspensions, um, any sort, there's so many different reasons that sellers run into trouble. So that was essentially what I assisted 
with cool. uh, for the last five years at this point. Okay. Right. And then you basically, the knowledge that you were able to accumulate there, you basically were just able to transfer into your, um, into the, into David Allen Miller law, right? Is that, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that cool. was, that's still a big mm. part of what I do. And in, in addition to mm. all that, I've expanded into certain business law areas. So cool. I've yeah. assisted with someone buying a business, purchasing a brand, mm. uh, selling a business. Sometimes it's Amazon related. Sometimes it's off of Amazon. Sometimes uh, most, most sellers these days, if they have a store, even if it's retail, they also sell online. So there's often okay, a lot yeah. of crossover. Um, okay, so it's, yeah. yeah, it's expanded. Hmm. Uh, how we met actually is like we uh, we met over the topic of listing hijackings, right? So yep. correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but a listing hijacking, it works like this. Let's say you're a seller on Amazon and you have a really great listing. You have a really great like, a myriad of products that you're selling. Um, and all of a sudden someone else sees, hey, this listing is going really well. And they start to sell um, on a face value, not at face value, but basically um, if you look at it, it's basically selling the same things, but at a lower price. Me as a me as a as a buyer as a consumer, I go on Amazon. I see two products that look basically identical. Only one is two or three euros or two or three dollars cheaper. Of course, I go for the cheaper version. But then I get because this is the fake account, the listing hijack. Basically, I get I get a very I get an inferior product. I lose trust in uh, the original listing. I would never go back to that yeah. listing anyway. The listing hijacker notice after after they've made their their healthy profit, they jump on to the next healthy listing, whereas the original listing owner um, uh, has a huge detriment because people have lost trust in the listing or in that specific product, and uh, they have to see how to handle the situation. Is that about correct? Is that correct? That's yes, something? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Just, and just to, just to add to that, when, when yeah. uh, discussing listing hijacking, I always think it's important to talk about Amazon has a unique process when it comes to selling products. So there are certain sellers that create the listings themselves. Often mm -hmm. they're, th these are the, uh, the victims of listing, of, of listing hijacking. So there's mm -hmm. the listing creators and then there's others who join those listings, which you're allowed to do on Amazon. So if I'm selling, uh, you know, Air Jordan sneakers, right? Um, and let's say Nike created a listing, you may need certain brands, you may need approval in order to sell it, but to, but for, the, for you know, for this point, other sellers, as long as they're selling that exact product are allowed to piggyback off of that listing. They're allowed to join it. So anyone who's ever made a purchase or has sold on Amazon will notice that on most listings, there's quite a few sellers. Sometimes there's dozens, sometimes there's only a few, sometimes there's just one, but you are allowed to join that listing. Now, where the problem lies is when the, all the sellers are not selling the exact same product. So if everyone's okay. selling the exact same product, someone sells it for cheaper, there's not anything you can do about that. There may be, you know, for however they're able to sell it, um, they're, they're allowed to. The problem lies is when the product is very cheap to the point where, you know, wholesalers are selling them for, for more than what they're going for on Amazon or what that seller is selling for, usually a bit of a red flag. So when that's the case, often those cheap, those sellers that are selling the product for a very low amount are selling counterfeit products. Now, mm -hmm. the product, of course, is not the same as the Air, in our, in our Air Jordan example. Maybe they're a counterfeit Air Jordan, right? So... When, when a buyer makes a purchase from that seller, often they'll leave a negative review. 
And if it's just that buyer, it's usually more than just one. So negative mm-hmm. reviews will accumulate. And before you know it, the listing is not what it once was. It could have had, you know, many good reviews. And then slowly, buyers lose confidence. The rating goes down. And once the hijacker, like you said, makes his profit, or if maybe someone files an intellectual property complaint against him, they leave, they go off of the listing, whether, you know, on their own, you know, with their own choice, or maybe they were forced to, like if someone removed them, and they do it again. And then as the brand owner, you have to deal with it. Now you have to contact Amazon. You have to figure out how to fix the mess that someone else left. Yeah, yeah. And especially like contacting Amazon seller support is not necessarily something where you know, okay, this will probably work. I'll probably have an answer by them tomorrow. That's normally not how it works. It takes a long time. You'll need a lot of evidence as well. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, offer something that you were completely not at fault for. One thing I'd like to, um, I'd actually like to jump in is a very interesting fact that not a lot of uh, sellers might know uh, because uh, you said, yes, you're actually, uh, you're actually able to file an intellectual property a complaint. You, you can actually you can actually move on the grounds of intellectual property law, whereas it's not. For example, um, when I sell a logic, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of um, let's say uh, articles where we write about how uh, you can basically violate Amazon's guidelines, but nothing will actually happen there. There's not a lot of ways for you to come. The only thing that will happen is you might lose your listing or you might get your account suspended. But here you actually have uh, you actually have this other path, this other channel over, you know, being able to file a, a proper complaint. Um, do a lot of sellers know that actually, or is that uh, is that something you have to communicate to them first? Do a lot of sellers know if they can file an intellectual a property complaint? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say yes. I think most yeah. are aware. Uh, okay. Anyone who's been selling for you know a certain amount of time, even even if you're not an experienced seller, I think it's pretty common knowledge. Some sellers are just a bit hesitant to actually file because yeah. they're worried about potential liability. Um, okay. Amazon also doesn't love when when you have an interest in the matter, so they prefer when either an attorney is filing the complaint on your behalf or a brand protection company. Um, mm-hmm. but I will, yeah, I think, I think most are aware of it. Okay. All right. Um, what do you say, how do you protect yourself as a seller, like from, uh, from hijackers, you know, what, uh, what right. kind of steps would you take as like a preventive, preventive measure measure? Yeah, sure. So the first step is to register your trademark. If you have a brand, right. uh, that's, that's something even before you register, you should register it as, as early as you possibly can. So I think one common mistake is the registration fee is is very small. So I, I think registering it as quick as possible is important. You actually don't even have to be selling it. You can file under what's called intent to use. So if you haven't actually okay. sold the product, but you're planning on launching it, you can actually file an application with the United States uh, Patent and Trademark Office. Um, or if you're selling in Europe, you can file in you know whatever country you're selling the product in. Um, but for purposes of this of this podcast, um, I'm assuming most sellers are selling on Amazon.com in addition to European the a few of the European platforms. So you want yeah. as wide protection as you can have. So usually that's that's USPTO, EU IPO, and then possibly WIPO, WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Um, okay. But number one is to register your trademark in the United States 
And then once you do that, you can enroll in brand registry. Now, I want to discuss a little bit about what that what that means exactly. So mm-hmm. sure. once yeah. you once you enroll in brand registry, you're unlocking a tool that's designed to help you build and protect your brand. So it just creates a better experience for your customers and Amazon. It's an automated protection, basically. So that information about your brand is used to remove suspected infringing or inaccurate content. So in short, it just makes it simpler to report IP violations. So it's 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 pretty vital. But in order to enroll, you have to have a trademark. You have to at least either have registered for the trademark, that means it's a registration, or you can file for the trademark application through what's called Amazon's IP Accelerator Program. So again, right. just for terminology purposes, once when you file for an application, it's not registered, until the USPTO says it's registered. So it usually takes about a year or so. The advantage of filing with the IP accelerator program through Amazon is even if it's not registered yet, you can enroll in brand registry. So that's 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 one of the reasons that okay. a lot of sellers use that program. All that program really does is connect you with potential law firms that Amazon recommends to use the mm-hmm. file for the mm-hmm. trademark. So you know Amazon right. has vetted them. They basically did the work for that's you. Cool. You don't have to research the firms yeah. and, and such. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. But I mean, even like, you know, with all these preemptive steps, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it can still happen that, uh, yeah, you have hijackers on your list. And uh, um, what is that? Like, what is, what is, what do you do then? What is basically your, your point of last resort? What, what can you do once the actual, yeah, the actual situation happens? <clears throat> right. So, If you put these programs in place, and there are other programs too that are, you know, just helpful to combat these issues, but it could still happen, of course, 100%. It's still very possible. You just, all you can do is do the best you can to put these processes in place so it doesn't happen. If it Mm. still happens, hijackers appear. The first thing you want to do is you want to monitor all your listings before you even see that. So sometimes sellers don't notice it. It could be months and they're in, you know, maybe they don't notice it until their revenue goes down. They're like, what's going on? Like last year, our numbers were a lot higher. Then they start digging a little deeper and they see they're, you know, essentially under attack. Right. Um, for me, I, 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 you know, I, I think it's best to hire an attorney, whether it's me or someone else. It's, it's very important depending on where, you know, where you're located, what country, um, you know, local counsel can always help. Um, but if a hijacker does appear, the best thing you can do is contact them with a cease and desist letter. Attorneys, attorneys are very skilled in drafting them very carefully and, you know, laying out the potential claims that the, so the, the quote unquote hijacker is facing, Um, And I think that most hijackers take it a bit more serious when they see it on a law firm letterhead. Uh, Doesn't mean they're going to respond. Doesn't mean they're going to remove it. But I've seen I tend to have much better results than my clients do when when contacting them because, you know, they don't they don't take they don't take them very serious, especially when they know exactly who they are. Now, if that cease and desist letter doesn't work, we discussed it before. You can always file a report of infringement. That's usually the goal. That's usually what, you know, what most brand owners want. They just want them off their listings, right? So once you file that report, you're going to need some documentation. You're going to need a trademark registration number, and you're going to have to have some sort of evidence that they're actually infringing. So 
Test buys are a great way of, you know, using evidence against any hijacker. Um, And if you're not sure, you can always contact an attorney. And if, let's say, the hijacker has been on your listing for a very long time and you've lost a lot of money because of it and you have proof they're selling counterfeit, you can always file a lawsuit also in addition to a report of infringement um, or instead of. Okay, right. Right, nice. Thanks for all that input, uh, David. I think we're also drawing near to, yeah, we're also uh, close to time now. Um, thanks a lot for being on our show. Is there, can you just maybe communicate uh, how, how people can reach you, uh, your, the name of your website and your telephone number and everything, just so when, when it goes down, they know who to call. Absolutely. So my email address is david at damlawfirm.com. My direct phone number is 516-313-1572. And my website is damlawfirm.com. Perfect. Cool, cool, cool. Thanks again, David, for being with us today. Really nice talking to you. And uh, of course, we wish you all the best and hope to see you again in the future, man. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Daniel. All right, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Prevents Podcast.